Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Wrist Cheese Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brodinky. With me, as always, is my homie Schmidt in your home for the horological hot takes, taboo topics, and often unpopular watch opinions. Schmitty, what's shaking, baby? You know, not a whole lot, my friend. Just uh, glad to be recording another episode with you back at the home office doing our thing. And uh, I think we're going to have a pretty good topic tonight. So all things good. How about yourself? You know, I'm hanging in. Work's uh, been busy, but uh, I'm staying afloat, trying to just keep up with the kids, the personal life, work, the whole work-life balance thing. It's, Tell me about it's it. always, yeah. uh, it's the mental gymnastics, I think everybody yeah, kind of sure. does. for sure. But uh, I'm hitting a little bit of the summer swoon, which is nice because uh, everybody starts to go away, so my schedule lightens just a tad, which is and refreshing. And we're almost, we're almost on that downhill slope where things start to fire off for just a little bit longer for you, and then coasting into the next year yeah i don't want to harsh breezy. everybody's i don't want to harsh everybody's gig on the, the <laughs> summer vibes and everything but once the weather starts to creep back down into the 70s and it's pumpkin spice everything that's my time of year because a i'm not sweating to death yeah b the kids are back in school not, there's not so many people lurking around which is basically who my customer base is right now which is why i'm so busy but you know, when everybody's got something to do, the hustle and bustle, everybody starts hitting that that Q4 mode where they got to start making their sales. Everybody's back at work. No more summer Fridays. Yep, uh, yep, yep. I, I know everybody else can wait. I cannot. You know, I, I will say this, at least for me, that's my travel slowdown period as well. Coast in here and then about uh, right away, bam, things start uh, picking back up and it's back on the road. So uh, I very much am also looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, before we get into main topic, a couple little releases I wanted to mention. Our buddy, Mr. Jones, who <laughs> made a big splash on the pod, and then after that has caught a little bit of fire, in case nobody noticed. Mr. Jones has dropped a new watch. We yes, had mentioned the perfectly useless afternoon. We've now tra- transitioned to the perfectly useless evening. Yep. I love it. I mean, so it's a darker, darker motif. Yeah. Right. I thought at first glance that it might have been a lady in the tube. I think it's it's questionable. I think it's up for debate, which I guess is nice. You know, ladies need to watch too. It's not just all about the dudes sitting in the inner tube. So good looks there. Uh, but yeah, you know, fun, another fun little watch from them and a little variety. He's got a martini glass on the back, which is just my style as well. Um, and also kind of a little plug shout out to our to our boys who cover all the liquor and watches uh, from our other two podcast um, friends. Uh, so that's fantastic. But this is it's a cool watch. I uh, I love it. I think it's uh, I don't know. Maybe I need to add it to my collection. We've been talking about it enough and the whole watch industry has been talking about it enough. It feels like it's it's finally time. Yeah, another somewhat small brand that I think we like. We've mentioned before Studio Underdog just dropped another flavor, right? It seems like that's all their watches are some sort of a flavor. <laughs> this one is the strawberry. It's a, a light red, so not quite as bordeaux is these other reds but it's it's a little bit faded a little muted i kind of like it sort of their their signature chronograph style yeah i mean it's great and this is what they they i think they call it what the strawberries and cream is the is the new colorway um very cool it is a pink dial um maybe maybe studio underdog can 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 hook up with us uh to do our to do our release this year but uh very cool watch as always they they knock it out of the park everything that they get just is sold out almost instantly. So uh, they know exactly who their market is. They know exactly what they're doing and they're doing it extremely well. So got to love it. 
I love to see it. Shout out to them. They're doing big things. Yeah, last little item of business before we get into the topic for today is this is a little bit of tea. I don't really know where I stand on it. Somebody sent this to me, and then I it got confirmed by a post recently. So Zenith says that the Chronomaster Sport is a waitlist watch for them. They they keep a list. They they can't meet demand. And I guess if it has all the overflow from the Daytona demand, I could understand it. Right, the Daytona is very hot watch. Everybody said they look very similar when it dropped. I could see that. Now, they have also mentioned that the Defy Skyline, which was one of their more recent Defy models, which with a nine o'clock small seconds subdial, they've mentioned that that is now a waitlist watch. No way! I cannot seriously imagine that has sold like hotcakes. I have not seen anybody who owns one. I've seen some wrist shots, but it's people who generally either work at jewelers or have a jeweler connection i i can't say i've ever seen one on a wild wrist even on the gram zenith defy skyline a waitlist watch you buying that i no i don't buy it at all not at all and and i and i've heard about the waitlist rumors for a little bit of time um of course nothing has been confirmed my contacts that are in the industry have kind of told me some things about it but we've never really talked about it on the podcast yet but i've heard from a lot of a lot of different retailers that that are still out there that Zenith just can't deliver products. So maybe that's why they've moved to kind of the waitlist motif that maybe it's just, there's not enough product to go around all the retailers that now they're taking things on order or special request only as a way to buy time in order to deliver that product. So maybe that's what it is. Um, but I mean, I can understand the Chronomaster sport because I think that that's an extremely desirable watch for, for a lot of people. But a Zenith Defy Skyline with a nine o'clock second subdial, I I don't know if I buy that. My first inclination when I heard this was, and Adam Sandler made a movie that went along right with this, is the guy who wears a wedding band to try to attract women. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right, like the one where he, he tries to pick up Brooklyn Decker and he pretends yes, like he's yeah, married. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right, the kid at college who pretends he has a girlfriend, so he seems like he's more marketable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, I mean, hell, the guy, the guy who has a job just to, in order to get another job, right? It's like, it's all about being more marketable, and uh, and I maybe this is a way to 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 tell the industry that hey, Zenith is in demand at an all time high now. There's a there's a premium to wait, but here's the caveat to that. You know, you're not really seeing that from other brands that are similarly priced in that in that category. Right. I don't know what the long term effects of that are going to be for a young brand like Zenith. But let's be honest. The vast majority of the watch industry has only recently started really caring about Zenith in the last, I'd say, two to three years. OK, they've done some really nice home runs. They've had some very great collabs. They're becoming more marketable and desirable. But. This is a brand new emerging brand for emerging clientele. If you start throwing all these crazy lists and crazy wait lists and all this kind of stuff at them now, I don't know if you're going to start alienating your consumer base and all of a sudden those people are going to stop buying your products. Well, certain brands that we know of can get away with that. 
Others yeah. cannot. Yeah, exactly. You know, Rolex can get away with it because they've been conditioned and they're they're so desirable that it makes sense. I just don't know if that's going to be a hindrance for Zenith moving forward. I mean, because to me, I don't want to have to wait for a damn Zenith. That's just me. There's other brands that I'll buy that I can get today instead of that. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yep, I agree. Into main topic here. Uh, this is one that I don't know if I've heard it on a watch podcast before, but a lot, a lot of people do it. I, you know, I've heard it on a lot of sports talk or whether it be yeah. Shaq and Charles or whoever. People talk about their Mount Rushmore. And I always like Mount, the Mount Rushmore analogy because it, it puts you, it gives you limitations to work in and it puts you in a, a spot where you have to pick four. And for the people who aren't in the US, we do have some non US listeners. Mount Rushmore is a landmark in the u.s that might have been acquired kind of questionably but anyway it's it's a landmark in the u.s that is basically a mountain that they've chiseled out some of our founding fathers faces in so it's supposed to be people you're proud of in that sense with regard to our country so in in the case of talking about a mount rushmore if, if you let's say you're a fan of basketball a lot of times people say who's your mount rushmore of the nba people will say well jordan okay lebron okay kobe and then let me pick Wilt Chamberlain. And then other people say, well, you know what? I got Oscar Robertson. He he averaged a triple-double for a season. How am I going to take him out? Well, I got Magic. It's nice because it only gives you four spots, so it gives a lot of room for moving things around. And kind of. it's always hard to be you know, last person in, first person out. So yeah. it, it adds a little bit of fun in that uh, more limited format. So this is something I think we're going to adopt it long-term. And uh, I think it'd be really funny to eventually do the Mount Rushmore of Shitters episode because I, I, I think that would be a solid choice. Going back that. to going back to the last episode, that's like I said, that's where I like to have fun. I think I, I could yeah. pick out the foremost dynamite shitters and I think it'd be a lot of fun. I, I, I Well, and, you know, it, you know when, to do when, it. when budgets are no option and you have unlimited resources, you can pick whatever the heck you want. But when you're confined to that small price point, Things really get start getting tight. Like you really had to start reevaluating what concessions you're going to make to make that list happen. I love I love that exercise. Right, and it's 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 hard to pick watches when they all have everything, when they all have the water resistance, when they're all chronometer spec, when they're all precious metals or whatever. yeah, it's apples to oranges at that point. When or, the watches, apples to apples at that. When point. the watches are so cheap that they, you have to compromise and. Rob Peter to exactly. pay Paul in certain exactly. areas. Exactly. That's when it gets fun because you have to yeah. prioritize what you're looking for. Yeah, it's so. a, it's a real challenge. Like last week's episode when we did that, I remember it. This was the challenge for sure. It was difficult to do. Yes. So that might be in the pipeline eventually, but it's not tonight's episode. Uh, we we kind of just went with uh, chronographs because spontaneity is one of the finer spices of life, and we just decided that's what we're going to go with. So. Chronographs is, is our Mount Rushmore. Chronographs is the topic tonight. And so I think we both have four. I also have a couple honorable mentions because I there's so many good ones. It's, yeah, again, man. hard to pick which four are going to make it and who's going to get left out. I have no doubts we're going to have some crossover. But sure. I think the beauty of this activity is you have to pick specific yeah. models. So even yeah. if you're going to say Speedmaster, you have to pick a Speedmaster because yeah. a lot of them have a lot of different historic significance different stories within the brand who wore it where it went etc different looks to them so 
I think that's important. So you definitely have to pick a specific watch. And at least when we do overlap, maybe you're not picking the exact same reference, which is also nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we'll kick it off. Um, so before before we do this, do yeah. you want to do your whole four first and then I go? Or do you want to do one and one? Or what's the what's the plan here? You know what? I think we got to go for I think we got to go for each because it's okay. I think it might be hard to track if you're not doing all four. Okay, that's fine. Okay. So I'll let you, you roll it. Okay, I'll go first. I'll let you roll it. I'll let you roll it. I'll go first. I talking about chronographs. I think it's hard not to go with this one first. Not that it is, in my opinion, the best chronograph, but it might be the most talked about nowadays. I'm going Rolex Daytona. Okay. I, however, am going to go with one of my favorite models of Rolex Daytona. It is the Zenith Daytona. Fair. Okay. Fair. Now, I chose this one specifically, and this goes back to the 1980s when Rolex first put an automatic movement in the Daytona. So this is a big leap, which from what used to be a manual wind chronograph yep. to an yep. automatic chronograph. So a big leap for them. And I was kind of surprised when I originally found out about this because you think they're so ahead of the curve and they had, you know, such an early hand in automatic movements that you'd think they would have been up on automatic chronographs. Obviously, yeah, we know about the whole automatic chronograph race, but I would have thought it would have come way before when it came for them. I mean, they're borrowing a movement in the 1980s. They're not getting their own proprietary move, automatic chronograph movement until later than that. Yeah, exactly. Kind of surprising from a Rolex standpoint. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Zenith movement is tremendous. It's a legendary movement. But I think legendary enough to be in is in a Daytona. Right, exactly. <laughs> Rolex is using it. You know, it's a good movement, right? Uh, other important kind of aspects of this watch also is it was the jump to 40 millimeters. And also the original size is what, 39 or 38? Yes. And it also boasted 100 meter water resistance. Yeah. Which, again, is for still some no people, date. not for some other people. Yes, also still no date. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, it also it, it had a, a steel bezel it, you could get it in precious metal two-tone uh, you know gold for me the one I prefer I don't know if everybody's cup of tea is this one I like the black dial with the steel bezel yeah. I think it looks yeah. really slick the contrast is better for sure I think so whereas obviously with the ceramic Daytona I think the, the white is much more popular nowadays but the black with the steel bezel looks A1 I think that's well, the one you go with well, because especially to back then, there was two real black dial or white dial versions, I should say, because you had the white dial with like the silver yeah. subdials, and then you had the white dial with the black subdials, which markedly looked better than than the silver subdials because they're again more contrast. But I think in this in this variation, the black with the uh, with the silver subdials really is is a handsome looking watch. I'm not a Daytona fan myself. I knew you were going to pick this watch, so I did not pick it. But um, this is a solid choice for sure. How could you not bring up this watch? But again, that's the beauty of this exercise is I think a lot of people, they say Daytona, and they're either going to go Modern Panda or they're going to go Paul Newman. Yeah. Right? Those are just, those roll off the tongue when you say Daytona. Yeah. I specifically like this one because not only does it have some interesting history, it has 
one of the best chronograph movements in it. And it also is sort of a landmark model for Rolex in general. So yeah, it, it's, it's basically a transition. Yes. I mean, this is so weird to me because it's, you know, it's such an iconic Rolex design, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the 6239, 6238s, those Daytonas that featured, you know, the manual winding calibers back then, you know, when we, when Rolex finally moves into the automatic with the 4030 caliber, this was a, you know, it's a Zenith movement. It's an El Primero caliber. And, you know, for it's so funny that for a long, long, long time, as a watch collector and an enthusiast, I didn't even know this story. That Zenith was was the movement that was inside the, the, the Rolexes of the 90s and the 2000s. Like, that was so crazy to me. And then eventually, you know, Rolex swaps out the movement with the 4130 caliber, which is what is in it today. But... Very interesting story that this is, I mean, it just testament to Zenith, right? So this one is an actual Zaytona where people were calling the Chronomaster Sport the Zaytona because they thought it yeah. looked like one. This one is an actual Zaytona. <laughs> so a little, I like that. little I like chunk that. of history there for you. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. So cool. So cool. Very, very, very All right. cool. I'm going to hit my next one. This yeah. one, we might have the exact same watch on. And if we do, it's okay. Again, if we were going to do NBA, we'd both have Jordan. We'd both have LeBron. So I'm going to go with the Moonwatch, okay. not just the Moonwatch, the Moonwatch. So the ST105.012. Ooh, okay, okay. This is the watch that went to the moon okay, with the astronauts. I like so I think that's a slam dunk for Moonwatches. And again, there's a few different ways you could have gone. You could have gone with the most contemporary Moonwatch because of how yeah. technologically advanced it is. You could have gone with an Ed White variant. Just like the Ed White, this has a 321 caliber. Yep, yep. However, uh, this was the first 42 millimeter model of the Moonwatch. That's right. Which is That's quite right. interesting, right? Some of the other, I believe they were, what, 39 before that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think technically they were 38.7, okay. uh, but 39 millimeters, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so these dropped in the mid-1960s. And they have all the classic looks that they put in the new one that were very desirable before they just dropped that again. The dot over yeah. 90, the step dial, a lot of you know the fonts that people look for. And again, that legendary 321 that has a column wheel where if you know anything about Speedmasters, the large majority of the recent ones are, are camp. So yep. Yep. that was a big deal. you know. And, and the column wheel chronograph is very sought after, especially nowadays that kind of people have figured out about the whole vertical clutch and all that. And it's just a very satisfying click and all. Not that the cams are bad at all. I've owned multiple mm -hmm. of them and they perform beautifully. And realistically, if you didn't know any better, you probably wouldn't have any, no, any yeah. knowledge of what this the difference is just, was. This is just watch nerd nonsense. But I mean, technically, column wheels from a from a manufacturing standpoint are more difficult to produce. I would assume. Because, yeah, because the cam system can literally be stamped out of metal. The column wheel actually has to be created because it's, it's literally a three-dimensional component. There's actually columns that are coming up out of the wheel, hence the name that have to be machined. So it's a little bit more labor intensive. It's a little bit more difficult to produce, but ultimately the end result aesthetics is nicer because it looks more beautiful. It's technologically uh, more advanced because it's got more traditional watchmaking elements in it. And lastly, as you pointed out, I mean, the response of the, the initiation of the chronograph and the stopping of the chronograph and the resetting is so much more crispy and crunchy that like it's very tactile in comparison to the, to the cam. The cam's a little bit more spongy, but 
you still know when you push the button. Like it's not, it's not a big deal. It just feels a little bit better with the column wheel. Yeah, that thing clicks. It's like a, it's like a snap. <laughs> yeah, I won't exactly, deny exactly. it is nice. It's oh yeah, for sure. And when you when you when you have them side by side and you feel them, you're like, yeah, one's one's real crunchy, the one's a little a little soft and squishy. It's okay. It's all right. On to the next here. This is suddenly becoming a very heavy Zenith episode. Uh oh. I've mentioned my adoration for this watch before. It is the El Primero A386. So the original tricolor subdial El Primero, the one that is literally El Primero, the first, yep. right? The yep. one that claims to be the first automatic chronograph. Again, whether yep. that is or isn't true is up for debate. But 37 millimeters, you get the super cool star on the case back, ladder bracelet. You get the colors that I always rant about, the different color subdials, the red and hand. second hand, man. That second it's, hand. It is elite. It's an elite second hand. <laughs> it's elite. I love that. It is very elite. You get the amazingly thin case for yeah, such a great movement, such a great chronograph. And again, if they made a movement good enough for Rolex, so you yeah. know it's just the dynamite piece overall. And especially these ones, if you see them now, they've aged so nicely, especially when the markers have yellowed out. Yeah. The dials have they haven't faded, but they've matured a little bit. They these look so good now. Yeah, yeah. And even though they remade them, I would much rather prefer an old age one. I think a lot of people would have. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. How, how could you not, right? Like, if you if you had the money, all the discretionary income in the world, and you could buy an original vintage Zenith, who wouldn't want to do that? And, and this watch is interesting to me because it has a 430 date that is very obtrusive like it's it's not it's not smoothly put in it, it cuts no. off a lot of things and it's kind of it's just an out afterthought there. let's be honest like this date's an afterthought but that's also but why for it's charming. some reason it works on this watch yeah, it's charming it's just tossed on there but it it works like i don't notice but, it as much as everybody complains about noticing 430 dates and how much they hate them i it just works but you know again for me this kind of underscores a, a design aspect of this watch it's an afterthought because the most important things were the chronograph. It was yeah. the movement. It was the readout. The date was secondary. Nobody cared. It was nice that it was there. But for me, when I look at the aesthetics of this, if it was really something that was intentionally placed to be legible, it probably would have been at the 3 o'clock or the 6 o'clock. But no, they're like, okay, where can we put this in the dial that's going to be the least obtrusive but still have a date? Okay, 4.30. Smack. Right? Like It's just kind of like uh okay we'll stick it there that to me is is more the designers focusing on what's actually important which is the watch itself the subdials, the timing all of that stuff is more important than the date and this was just a time period where zenith just absolutely crushed it yes yes in the chronograph yes. game like even the old 384 pandas the the cover girl if you've ever seen that one there are so many great references even the, I think it was later on the the poker chip, which is just so out there. Yeah, I know they they recently did a revival yeah, did a of a lot of these, of it, lot of these right? pieces, and I know they've yeah. been super limited, which stinks because I I would totally like love one of them, but they just did it right, and they just have all all the good, just chronograph 
design. I, I love them so much. I, I can't say enough about them. Uh, so we'll see if Zenith pops off this coming week or two after all this love we're giving them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a very interesting brand. And, you know, you have to give respect where respect is due. Again, to reiterate, I mean, this was a movement that was in a Rolex, especially their, their top of the line. And back then, when you could get any sports model Rolex you wanted, the only one you could not get was a Daytona. That was reserved for the most astute collectors, the people that had the highest purchase histories, things like that. That was a truly grail watch, even before the term grail watch existed. You know, So the fact that Rolex reserved that caliber for that type of watch says a lot about the specific Zenith Alpermera movements that were inside those Rolexes back then. So I'll just say that. But the one thing that I find that I love about Zenith is there a brand that's also been able to relaunch their vintage aesthetic? And it looks exactly like it did 60 years ago. Yeah, those, years are, ago. those are faithful re-editions. I mean, it, it's, it's perfect. And the thing is, that design is quintessentially their own. Yep. You, you can't, I mean, if you put a bunch of chronographs next to each other and you're like, does this look like the same? Yes, it's a chronograph. They got three sub dials. Okay. But the fact that they did the colors and the vibrancy of the materials that they used and the font and everything that that is that is their own design language and i love that and i love that even their modern issues still carry that design language forward and pay tribute to it in a faithful way and i i think it's fantastic this is a home run watch for sure lastly number four get ready this is where i'm doing a zagaruski uh-oh. Because I think everybody says chronograph. Bro's going to slam dunk it with a, a Seiko chronograph. Yeah, right? it's going to be a Pogue, right? You're going to troll the the automatic chronograph lovers from uh, Zenith. and No. Actually, quite the opposite. I'm going to go with the Hoyer Carrera. I believe the reference is 2447. Oh, you picked one of mine. <laughs> did I? No way. Yeah, you did. You okay. did. All right. At least uh, hey, if that's the first one, I'm surprised, to be honest. <laughs> so got its name from a Mexican car race, apparently. Yep. yep. They started Killed with... a lot of people, by the way. That, yeah, that I, I did that. was very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it was very dangerous. So apparently, I guess Jack Hoyer got the name from some racers who were racing and they told him about this race and he said, Carrera sounds cool to me. I'll take it or whatever. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So they sported a value movement. Um, unlike most chronographs, they don't have an external bezel. I thought that was quite interesting. Yes. You know, it's something you don't really take in when you originally look at that. Cause you just, you usually think chronograph tachymeter external bezel. Yeah. And then you look at these and you're like, Oh, actually this is a pretty plain looking watch. I mean, it has three sub dials, but it's very, as far as chronographs go, it is not very busy. No, but what what's funny about that? Do you know who the first brand to do an external chronograph bezel was? No, it was Omega. Omega was the first watch company in the world to take the tachymeter scale, remove it from a dial, and put it on an external bezel. And that was the way that it was when it was launched in 1957. So literally all other chronographs that came after that with tacky bezels on the outside were 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 borrowing the style. Very interesting. I learned something today. 
speaking of t- uh, technical innovation, they improved water resistance on these models by using a metal ring around the out outside of the crystal. We read the same articles. Cool. We, read we the probably same articles. did. I mean, I gotta assume if we did research on it, we probably looked at all the same sources. Yeah, we did. We did. So that's interesting. Uh, so you're getting water resistance on a chronograph there. Big deal because they're notably not too resistant to water. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, but yeah, this just has a super classic look. The stick indices, the Hoyer badge for me. Oh man. Without the tag over it is super it's cool. Everything. The big U. Right. This is just it's just a great watch. And I you see it on a lot of the vintage reseller pages and with good reason. I mean, I think I even I got a free edition of Hodiki magazine for whatever reason. I don't know why. And it's on the cover. It's it's behind yeah. me. You can see it over there. It's a Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just a super cool watch and it's it's got that sort of time period stamped into it. When you look at it, you could tell it's old, but it's just great. It's plain, but I think that's sort of also what makes it charming. No, I think I think you actually said it right. And this is going to be the first watch that I was going to cover. So since this is your last one and my first, that'll one, be a good in. transition. I'll jump into this <laughs> one as well, because um, this is one that I had on my list too. And we read we read a lot of the same articles because I can I can tell you you definitely read what I read. Um, but I love this watch for a lot of different reasons because I love that it's simplistic. And I think that that was interesting from what was what was read about or what we read about this particular watch is Jack was really looking for something to be functional, but as austere and very modern as possible. Yeah. Right. Clean, clean, clean aesthetics, clean lines, you know, very Eames, very 1950s, 1960s, you know, modern aesthetic. This watch is emblematic of that. And, you know, value 72 movement. So, again, a very, very high grade movement. It was used by a lot of different brands. Manual winding, of course. But I will have to say this. Of all the variations, because the original the original reference of the Carrera was a 2447N. Yep. N was Noir, which was the black dot. I had a silver outside retention ring for the crystal and that's where he put all the graduations to really clean up the dial so that you didn't have all this extra dial text uh, or the extra dial stuff on there but my absolute favorite variation of this since we had to pick specific references my version is the 2447 sn which was the silver and black panda got a silver dial black sub dials there's just something so stealth sexy about this watch that I just I, I I don't even know how to describe it. It's like to me, it's like if I had to ask my my almost two-year-old daughter to draw me a chronograph, this is what she would draw me. It's just so iconic in its design. It's like it's always been in the back of your mind. Like if someone was like, hey, draw this watch for me. This is what you would draw because it just makes sense that that's what it, that's that's what you would draw. And it's stunning. I absolutely love the watch. I love the sub dials. I love the integration. I love that it came on beads of rice bracelets like it. Mm-hmm. This watch is just so 60s in the best way. Right. And oh, you didn't like it on the beads of rice bracelet. Well, here's a nice perforated core frame strap that you'll wear when you're driving in your high performance race car. Just like. Awesome. 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 Yeah. They just nailed all the proportions. Super legible. And 
before we got started recording today, this is why I'm, I was I asked you that question. I, was like, I had a feeling. <laughs> I was like, why? Why is it when I look at this watch? Why is this timepiece not a consistent mainstay in the tag Hoyer collection today? I'm not talking about that bloated monstrosity at 42 millimeters that you're seeing on the website where the 44 version is a complete bastardization of any racing legacy this watch ever had. But why is this model not there? And somebody actually put that on the show post last week. They said, why do I have to wait for limited editions to come out to pick this watch up in small batches and compete for them when this is maybe the best watch they've ever made? I should be able to get this any day of the week. It should be their Speedmaster. And it's not. It's not. I mean, the 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 cherry, the cherry down one that came out what last week we talked about it on the yeah. pod or the week before. Um, that's a that is one of the most beautiful Carreras I've ever seen. Personally, I love that dark red dial. Because it could have been a green dial, like what everyone else is doing today. But Tag's like, you know what? We're just gonna go a little bit different. We're just gonna go cherry cherry bomb red could have been Boom. an aqua dial you know <laughs> but i love that they went with a different color than what people would expect them to go with and honestly i wasn't even expecting that watch at all so i think it was a good release for them but again it's why do i have to get this in a limited edition this watch should be a mainstay in the collection give me a give me a new war dial Give me, give me a silver noir dial and give me a noir silver dial. Like, that's it. That should just be consistent in the collection at all times. 39 millimeters, automatic, or hell, hell, make it manual winding. I don't care. And let's roll. Tag, do yourself a solid and do it. We got to get him on the horn to the gauze and have him run it up the flagpole. You know, he's too busy wearing three-handers, man. You know, three-handers. He should be rocking... Two four four seven Carreras. Man. All right. What else you got for us there, big so, guy? So uh all right. So I went intentionally as far left field as I could go with a lot of different watches because I was like, okay, we can't talk about you know vintage vintage watches or chronographs in general. We can't, you know, not mention mention a Daytona, we can't not mention an El Primero. I knew for a fact, almost in my head, that you were gonna pick those two watches. So I intentionally steered away from them. I had an idea you might pick a Speedy, but I'll get to that one a little bit later. But the next watch that I wanted to pick, um, I wouldn't say is probably one of the most iconic chronographs ever, but for me, it's just a really awesome looking chronograph. And um, I had to add it in here. So for me, I added in the 1950s Brigade Type 20 yeah. chronograph. This is made for the French, uh, the French Air Force in the late 50s. Um, I love it by compacts you know one of the one of the sub dials and some variations was enlarged it had kind of the graduations there for different timing uh references for the pilots it was also one of the first flyback chronograph movements which i think is really awesome and i love that this is a a watch that is quintessentially brigade which i think in many ways marries really well traditional classic old world watchmaking with something that's a little bit more modern and I love this watch. My favorite modern version of it, if I could find a modern version of it, would be the one that they did a few years back for Only Watch, which was kind of like a, a chocolate patina version. It looks almost like the version from 1950 to a T, if it had a tropical dial. 
And if I could get my hands on it, that would be the one. But, you know, they, there's only one in existence because it was made for that charity auction. Yep. But the Type 20, I think, is a really cool chronograph because it has a military history. It has a very elegant style about it, which is so weird with this kind of like engine knurling on the outside of the bezel that rotates. And it's it's just a funky watch. And I absolutely love it for that very specific reason. So the Type 20 for me, an original one would be certainly a go-to. Uh, my next one, I mean, how could you have a legendary chronograph conversation and not include a Breitling, specifically a Navitimer? But I wasn't about to pick your run-of-the-mill Navitimer, so I went with the 24-hour Cosmonaut. Ah, specifically the nice. version, the 809 that was worn by Scott Carpenter, the second American astronaut into space with the Mercury Project aboard his mission Aurora 7. He wore the 24-hour Cosmonaut to time his orbital um, flight, which is pretty cool. He wasn't there long enough to really need a 24-hour watch, which is kind of a hilarious aspect of his flight story, but uh, <laughs> certainly a very cool watch in the first place because it was one of the first Swiss watches in the world to go up into space. Um, and it's cool. If you're going to talk about you know quintessential chronographs, you have to have an avatimer in the conversation. But for me, the 809 Cosmonaut with the 24-hour dial um it's just a very interesting watch it's they just relaunched it uh, as we know um there was a whole the whole hype around that watch which when i look at the, the press videos and everything about this particular release i was so saddened because upon like scott carpenter's like re-entrance into earth like his watch got wet during the mission in the splashdown <laughs> And then he just left it in the sock drawer for like 30 oh, years. And you haven't seen these photos? No. Oh my God. It's so bad. It's toast. It, it, bro, it doesn't even look like a dial was ever even there. Jeez. The entire watch has been completely rusted inside and out. Like it literally looked like it lived at the bottom of the sea for like 20 years. So it's so funny that like the you know Scott Carpenter's watch finally resurfaces and I was like wait that's it, <laughs> but uh, but nevertheless the funny the story is still kind of hilarious, but um, it's just a cool watch, you know all all water ingress aside it's just it's a cool watch and I think it's certainly one that has a historical value and and certainly one that's very cool to to have uh, in a collection of hallmark quintessential. Uh, chronographs which is very cool yeah and i certainly had this on my list of honorable mentions my favorite part about this watch is that obviously a navitimer is super busy the only yeah. text it has is navitimer <laughs> yeah it yeah. has swiss made woven in there on the bottom but in the main focal point of the watch navitimer that's it navitimer yep that's it it's got the old logo which is awesome yeah, the OPA logo. Yeah, you get tons of contrast with the subdials and the outer chapter rings and everything. You know, I I think everybody who sees this watch likes it. Even when I was a total noob, I saw it and I was very overwhelmed by what I was looking at. But I said, yeah, that's cool. I know that's a cool watch. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a cool watch. And it's funny, though, one of the um, one of these 809 Navit timers was actually worn in the Bond film Thunderball. Maybe not the 24-hour version, but one of the pilots that like gets like his plane hijacked and the nuclear warheads removed from it, um, he actually dies wearing his 809. So it's not the part where they're underwater. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's one of the parts where he's underwater. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he's like wearing the wearing the Navitimer underwater. 
and he's like he's like dead <laughs> eat it carpenter yeah 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 i mean hey apparently they're not uh you know not doing so well in the water did you did you find a photo of that that watch i was talking i about? did it's pretty beat up <laughs> <laughs> so it's awesome that he had it for like the mission and he like you know splashed down and all this stuff but the fact that this this poor movement and dial are just absolutely wrecked uh is is kind of a is a kind of a funny story so but i will say this i'm glad the new version did go back to to uh to a manual wind i think that's pretty cool it looks like a penny <laughs> it's so <rusty>. yeah it, <laughs> yeah like what you found in the fountain after like 40 years yeah yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. Wow. But you know, you live and you learn, and then you get a watch with water resistance. So there you go. Uh, and speaking of watches with water resistance that could handle splashdowns, um, I'm gonna have to go with my last pick, which for me is probably one of the most important chronographs in the world. Um, you already mentioned a version of it uh, with the speedy with the speedy, uh, and this is certainly a speedy as well. But I didn't go with the reference that you went with. I intentionally went with the ST105003, not the 012. Okay. And for me, the reason why is this. This was the off-the-shelf chronograph that Omega unknowingly submitted to NASA for the space program testing. NASA requested the watches in 1964. Omega sent them in, had no idea why they were sending them in. And again, they were sent in along other brands. So there was you know, three other brands that submitted watches, Rolex being one of them. Nobody really understood why they were submitting watches. Could have an idea, but nobody knew. And this watch just being so well over-engineered, so well built, was able to pass all of NASA certification tests to fly qualify this watch for use in space, officially in March 1st of 1965. The SD-105-003, what collectors call the Ed White, is one of the most historically important chronographs in the world, specifically because it passed NASA's test for flight qualification, but also was the first ever watch to do EVA. So this was the Ed White watch because Ed White was the first American astronaut to leave a space capsule. And that was on Gemini 4. And so not only was the watch certified, but when Ed White's launch with Ed White's EVA, it became officially a professional timepiece because now it was used in the vacuum of space. Very interesting. No watch had really ever been subjected to that before. So for me, it's an incredibly important reference for the Speedmaster. It was a transitional one as well because when you look at the aesthetics of the watch, it has the case from the previous generation, the CK2998s, those smaller cases, right? That 38.7 millimeter. But you look at the dial, and it has what's essentially the dial right before the professional designation is added. You have the baton hands. You have the, the, the arrow tip on the chronoseconds. Like all of the things that look like a modern Speedmaster today is already prevalent on this particular variation. It just doesn't have the asymmetrical case, and it just doesn't have the professional writing on the dial. But this was the watch that got Omega to add professional to the dot because it flew in space. And it's so tough, especially when you're doing an exercise like this, because how many Speedmasters, first of all, are there? Tons. Tons. 
And you can go on and on with different variations, Tintin, Japan Racing, Snoopy, Snoopy, Snoopy. Um, <laughs> There's only three. There's only three, okay? There's but I'm just three. saying, you know, you, you have uh, so many different dials, so many different variations from such a historic watch that you really can pick any of them and, and wind up okay. And that's, I'm, for the most part, I'm just talking about manual wines. I mean, you have automatics, you have triple dates you we've spoken yep. about so many of them at length it's almost like you have uh, unlimited options in that regard and I, and I think that's great as far as being a collector goes but it makes these exercises mighty tough no it does it does and that's when you were like when you were reading out the first parts of the speedy reference you picked and i was like, ST like no I no was like, no 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 and then you're like zero one two i was like yes okay all right at least I had something to talk about because you went with the professional. Yes. You went with the moon watch. What's funny, though, is a lot of people don't know this. And I only know this because I love space and NASA and all things related to that. Um, the ST105003 was actually the last Speedmaster to walk on the moon. Hmm. So Gene Cernan, when he became the last man to step foot on the lunar surface with Apollo 17, he didn't wear a 102 he wore a 003 so these watches were the first batch of watches that nasa certified for space flight and then eventually omega switched the cases to the asymmetrical cases because they were going to do that naturally anyway and it just made more sense because the pushers and the crowns were protected from you know impact and catching on things it was easier for the nasa astronauts to use them and because it was a bigger case it was easier to operate right but NASA, being a government agency, didn't get rid of anything. So these watches would take their turns going through the different missions after the flight, after the flight uh, qualification. So it's so fortuitous that the first watch that was actually certified for flight was also the very same watch that would be the last one to step foot on the lunar surface. Seems very which, appropriate. Which I think is so, so cool. Um, and uh, that's a watch that is in, uh, I believe, in the Smithsonian or, or it's in the property of Omega at their museum. But that watch was the same version that they used to create a digital scan to recreate the new 321 versions in stainless steel, the modern versions. Um, they couldn't open up the watches because it was considered a historical artifact. Yeah. So they had to use... Um, like a like a high version of MRI scanning to literally scan the watch inside and out to recreate the movement and the case and brace and everything to the exact specifications of the original. How does that work with magnetism and watch parts? I don't know. I really don't have an answer for it, but <laughs> apparently it was a process I just, called... When I hear MRI, that's the first thing I think <laughs> apparently of. Apparently, it's a process called tomography MRI scanning. I don't know what the difference is. It could be some sort of an ultrasound or something. There, yeah, there's I think so much technology I, yeah, out there. Yeah, I, think so like that. I think it's yeah. more so like that. Yeah. But they were able to recreate it to the exact specifications. So these modern, you know, Ed White, you know, 321 Steel Speedmasters that are extremely coveted um, and very hard to get, it's essentially a vintage one. But with like a modern bracelet. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. Um, so Robert Yon, if you're if you're listening to this, uh, I hope one day you and I will meet because I'd love to try on your 321. <laughs> All right. I guess since we got that out of the way, should we roll honorable mentions? 
Yeah, let's do some honorable mentions for sure. You know, a lot of them kind of jive with ones that we picked. I know you picked the Navitimer. I also really love the Top Time. That's a great pick. The too. old yeah. Top Time. Yeah, that's a good looking watch. Yeah, and, they, 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 and it almost looks like a Carrera. I was going to say it looks a lot like a Carrera. <laughs> and you know what? You can get into those for a lot less than a Carrera nowadays. Yeah. So that, that's nice. Um, also speaking tag, or should I say Hoyer, uh, the Monaco. Yeah. I like I, it a lot. It's got a cool, a, a cool. It's a square watch. It's it's a cool square chronograph. Hey, the world's first water resistant square chronograph. Yeah, and it's got a sexy name, right, it. Monaco? <laughs> uh, I spoke a lot. I think last episode, episode before, about the Spitfire from IWC. I like that a lot. Yeah, Not for any particular reason, other than it's just a pretty sleek pilot chrono. Yeah. Obviously, I got to pay a little love to the 6139s, the Bruce Lees, the Pogues. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them, even though I didn't pick one. And I know people are probably disappointed in me. No, but, but sometimes, like you said, you know, we, we got a zig when, when people expect us to zag. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I intentionally did not pick the Monaco because I thought you would pick it. And so I, I was did like, not pick my last honorable mention because I thought you were going to pick it, and that is the Tudor Big Block. You thought I would pick that? Yeah, I thought that was a sneaky pick. The Tudor I mean, that's Big a very, Block. That's a very sneaky pick, by the way. But you know, I it it didn't even I didn't even think about it. I thought about everything else that we've talked about today, like literally every single other watch. I thought about the top time. I was like, I don't know, is it? Is it too like too on the nose, or is it too like off the beaten path? I don't know. I thought for sure you were gonna pick a, a pogue, like legitimately. I was like, yeah, he's probably gonna pick a pogue or a Bruce Lee or something. Like, bro cannot resist. That's right. <laughs> Here I am eating crow, right? Because you you certainly did the opposite of that. But yeah, no big block. Big um, block. You get a hey, it's you get sort of the D- Daytona vibe, but you get a date with a cyclops. Yeah. Right. And again, it's also another outsource movement, which makes it a little bit of a chonky boy. But these just I mean, have so okay. much, so much personality. I really wish they'd bring this watch back. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a, it's a cool watch. It, it certainly is. But again, you know, for me, you know, some honor, honorable mentions, you know, I had, I had Monaco on my list. Uh, if we were going Tudor for me, if I was going to go anything, it would be the, uh, the old Monte Carlo. Yeah, the Heritage Chronos are Heritage so Chronos, good. Heritage Chronos, Monte Carlo, the the home plate dial, like those would be my that color scheme is Chronos. so yeah. good. It, it is, it is. I mean, both of them, orange, white, and black, or blue, yeah, white and orange. I mean, it, there was just something so awesome and funky about the '60s and '70s when it came to watch design that I just, I absolutely love. I mean, you know, you think it look, you think about things like the top time, the, the Zoros, like the original Zoros, you know, like yep. so awesome that somebody came up with this. It's like, yes, that's the dial I want to see on this production watch. <laughs> like, it's just like today we would be like, this is dumb. Why would you ever do that? But someone's like, no, no, this is the straight fire and we're going to put it on. I mean, this is the time that we saw things like the Ultraman from Omega come out. I love the Ultraman. Forgot I, him. I mean, when I was talking about Speedmasters. <laughs> I mean, how could you not love the Ultraman? You know? And for a long time, collectors didn't even know if it was legitimate. They didn't even know if that was a real watch. 
And it wasn't until some deep diving at Omega HQ that it finally came out probably five years ago or so that this was actually a legitimate watch because for many years, people thought that the second hand was just modified from like a Mark II because yeah. there was a few that had the orange second hand. But the Ultraman, come to find out, actually has a slightly longer second hand because the dial aperture is slightly longer on the, uh, on the regular speedies than it is on the Mark IIs. So it was a decidedly you know, unique choice that Omega had as an option for people back in the 1960s. I'm like, can I get a new Speedmaster with an orange <laughs> second hand, please? Uh, that would be fantastic. Okay, thank you. Bye. Um, I mean, just cool stuff like that. You see that on top time. You, you see it on a lot of different stuff back then. But that era, those, those two decades of design were just so impressive to me because it literally laid the foundation for essentially every cool thing that we try to covet today. Yeah. You know? And the Monte Carlo even has a six o'clock Cyclops on some of them. And I don't hate it. No. No. I mean, could you imagine if Seiko did a modern reissue of a Pogue? Well, that's the other part is we talked about faithful reeditions. They just made some new speed timers that really don't resemble the old speed speed timers very much at all. No. But if they re if they reissued the Pogue, I mean, that's like that's like the watches I always joke about that these companies keep in the vault that are like when we you know we, there's already a prototype of it somewhere. If we fall on hard waiting. times, we got this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they got that one in the pipeline. I mean, look, hell, they've reissued every day everything else they've done. Like the last real big thing is to create a new modern Pogue. I think that that would be so sick. Yeah, because. Again, you think about watch design, how many yellow dial red and blue bezels chronographs do you know about in a barrel-shaped case? Like, that is its complete own design. Nothing else looks like it. It's like the El Primero. It's got a lot of stuff going on, but it works. <laughs> you know, it, it's a hideous watch to me, but it's so ugly. I love it. And I think that that's part of the charm. Plus, it flew in space, so you, you also can't take that away from it, too. And it, it might have first. won the automatic chronograph race. So yeah, yeah. There's also the that. movement, at least. Yeah, there's also that. No, I think, uh, man, I, I really, I had to say when you when you were bringing this to my attention at first, I was like, I don't really understand what the topic is, but once I figured it out, I was like, this is going to be a very fun exercise because yeah, it's what we can bring back. So that's great. Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, we could do this for any type of genre that that we want, and and maybe the next thing is to to challenge the boys to see if uh if they can if they can replicate it um i mean it might be a little hard now because we've already picked some incredible bangers but you know it's always interesting to see what other people come up because you know when you when you are presented with constraints like that um it makes things difficult it makes things very hard to to, to pick um and everyone's got their opinions on stuff so yeah, it's always interesting to see where people split the hairs, so to speak. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, other than that, you got anything else there, big guy? No, man. Uh, I think that that's it. Um, this was a, a a little bit more of a challenging exercise than I thought, but it was fun. I was excited to see what you picked, and uh, and obviously, you know, we had some similarities in the things that we that we like and and that we would pick for ourselves, but. I'm happy to have done another episode. We're moving on very quickly. Um, we'll be approaching episode 52, not too far off into the future. 
which is going to be pretty Yeah, this impressive. was 42 in case you were counting. 42, yeah. So we get another 10 episodes before we hit the the solid uh, one-year one mark. mark. Yeah. So we it's going to be crazy. A, a few milestones coming up. We're chasing 50,000 downloads soon. And your boy will be chasing 30,000 follows soon. So, you know, some things to keep an eye out for. Some celebrations that'll be in order. Yes, yes. And uh, have you decided when officially you're doing uh, the giveaway? It's gonna be a... it's gonna be October. That's the okay. that's the the month of uh, breast cancer awareness. So that'll be it. Okay. Yeah. So stick around, guys, too, for October, because as we mentioned, we'll be we'll be doing the the timepiece. We have some other goodies that we have in the pipeline as well for some run runner up winners uh, that we'll be doing. So um, we'll give you guys some more information about that as we get closer to time, which will be fantastic. Uh, but for those of you that have already you know donated money and things like that to to Bros Cause. Uh, this is really his project. I'm just kind of along for the ride. But for those of you who have done that already so far this year, thank you. It's really impressive uh, to see how much the community has responded. Um, it's really great that we do this as a podcast. It's very, very important. Uh, it helps to really benefit a lot of people that, that you know, we don't know directly. So um, we're very fortunate that we can give back. So we should. Um, anything else you want to add on that, bro, with, the, with regards to the uh, the project? No, just uh, really appreciate all the love and support on that and really enjoying all the uh, pink strap wristies and the, the creative shots yes, I've seen. Yes. Um, there's been a ton of them. It's, it's been a lot of fun. So Yeah, for sure. And I tried to share as many as I could. And just, uh, yeah, thanks for the support. You know, it's got a, a lot of really positive reception from a lot of different people, and uh, it's great to see. Any update from our, our boy Strap Habit on when the next drop is going to be? He said it would be later this month originally. You know, the supply okay. chain's getting real weird. I don't know if it's going to be. I'll, I'll have to do a little digging on that. But hopefully we'll restock at the end of this month. We can Everybody else can get the ones they were looking for. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, hey, guys, thanks again. Um, this is your place for horological hot takes, taboo topics, and often unpopular watch opinions. Again, as always, I'm Schmitty. I'm with my good boy, Brodinky. And uh, thanks for tuning in. See you on the next one. Deuces. Deuces.